0: alaikum. salamu alaykum. Well, can you hear me? Okay, good. All right. <clears throat> we'll wait a moment for, for the others to join us, inshallah. So what year are you in the law school? Oh, uh, I can't hear you right now.
1: This is my second year. Right here. Okay. Yeah, but it's a weekend JD program, so it's going to take us four years to graduate.
0: Okay, nice. Yeah. Good, good. And then you're also working full-time and family full-time and everything else full-time?
1: Uh, yeah, well, actually not working full-time now. Um, I was, but I, uh, I, I've i started to work part-time now. But, yeah, Working and family full-time, three kids.
0: Mashallah. Mashallah. How old are they?
1: Yeah. So starting up from a five-year-old, 12-year-old, and a 13-year-old.
0: <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's definitely going to keep you busy, Inshallah.
1: Yeah. yeah, it does.
0: What made you decide to go to law school?
1: Uh, it's the study of law. I enjoy learning about law, mm. uh, the philosophy behind laws. Um, and I was a teacher, so... Mm. Um, but I didn't want to go back to the classroom and teach. So I do see myself in the future, maybe teaching law or teaching. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. Very nice, sure.
1: Actually, one of the students who just logged in, he was my former student. Really? OK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now he just took the LSAT and starting law school.
2: Hmm.
0: OK. Very good. And let me, let me check what's going on with the loyalist students. One second. Where were you teaching?
1: Oh, just um, in Houston.
0: Oh, okay. Good, got it, got it. Yeah.
1: So, actually, I did Islamic schools, and mm. um, that was a fun experience.
0: If you – well, are your kids right now in full-time Islamic school?
1: Oh, no. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's my – Maybe a question for anyone who had uh, connections with full-time Islamic school: Would you, if you had kids now, would you put them there?
1: I it, my experience wasn't the greatest, <laughs> so that's why I wouldn't. Um, but I'm sure, but I've heard of people who have excellent experiences, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think it just depends.
0: Yeah, um, right, right. Yeah. yeah. What I've noticed uh, among among my undergrads is that. Uh, if uh if they had a co a good cohort. I think yes. Then, that makes sense they're good. If they didn't have good cohort, then that just ruins everything.
3: Well, I didn't realize I was the only one. Sorry from everyone. <laughs> this, you know,
1: there were a couple more people who said they were gonna come.
0: Yeah, I'm sure uh, uh, I'm sure they'll be they'll be joining in inshallah. And I have some undergrads who <laughs> who are pre law who wanna to come too. Okay. So but That's at least cool. we can do some some brief introductions. Uh, uh, say do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'll
3: turn my video on so I don't... uh, (laughs) uh, So, sorry, I think uh, she was quickly, I guess, introducing me while my family was being really loud, like uh, usual days during the pandemic. But um, currently, I I went to the University of Houston, did chemical engineering, uh, currently working as an engineer in Baytown from home for the last year, and I'm planning on pursuing law. So, just we on applications and stuff right now for next year. So, inshallah. Uh, I live in Houston. Um, and I guess that's about it. Love sports. Um, used to heartbreak with Houston sports. Uh, uh, that's about it.
0: Okay. Very nice. Right. And, and honey, you used to take my class at web, right? Back in the day?
3: I did.
1: Yeah. Okay. Just like two classes. Two or three classes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Usually I'm always paying attention to all the students. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> and then said uh, you probably don't know me, but uh, just a little bit of background information on me. Uh, at Loyola, uh, I teach Islamic studies, and I'm also the Muslim chaplain. And then I've been active in the Muslim community in the Chicagoland area for for over 20 years, and and so I have uh, academic training in Islam as well as traditional training, and so many like madrasa as well as the, as well as the university and such. And that's me in a very very simple nutshell. And and so having said that, let's uh, uh uh the goal is is to explore the operations of, of Islamic law. And from there we can, depending upon what your interests are, we can also get into some of the details. And and so one of the core books that we're using for our skeleton at least is gonna be this book by Khalid Abu al-Fadl, Reasoning with God, Reclaiming Sharia in i think it's called like in the modern age yeah and how al fadl is is good i think as a writer he's not as strong but in terms of his ideas i think he's very very strong and and essentially in terms of the map of uh, islamic legal scholars uh he tends to be left of center and uh, he focuses on on a number of specific topics in terms of his discourse but most often it's reconciling uh, Islam through Islamic law in the contemporary world and And what that especially means is that for most people, Islamic law is a theoretical uh, venture, almost like what would be a theoretical Islamic state like be like in terms of zakat and and stuff like that and And so he, uh, and other people are trying to negotiate Islam in the modern era through other aspects of Islam, sometimes through culture, uh, sometimes through spirituality, sometimes through politics. And, and so his focus is law uh, as a particular type of discourse. And so what I thought for today is a couple things. One is to, to figure out how we're going to approach the material and And one approach is basically I just lecture and we discuss over the course of however many however many Mondays uh, another approach is that uh, you all volunteer for chapters and then you teach them back to the rest of us, and I just fill in the blanks uh, that way uh, I recommend uh, but it's fine if you don't have time for that, but I recommend it mainly because that's the most effective way to learn material anyway, right it's when you get assigned to having to teach it to, to, to everyone else. Most of the book <clears throat> is not going to be as much about the operations of Islamic law, but uh, it's going to be thinking of Islamic law as this amorphous body and the different issues that we often have to wrestle with uh, as, as Muslims in, in the world. And so if your interest is more, you know, what is the history of Islamic law and how does that work, we can also do that or do that instead. And so. So this class is sort of open compared to what you're looking for. What I thought I'd do for today, in addition, is is to sort of give an overview of just what are the main parts of Islamic sciences. How do they fit together, and then how do they work? And that'll be to give you a number of diagrams. And so, uh, and then what we would do for next week is go through the prologue, which is a section literally called Introduction to Sharia. That will probably be done either in one Monday or in two, and then we can start going through the other chapters. And so so while we're going through the first part of the class, where I'm, I'm giving you a sense of how does, you know, the different parts of Islam, think about which approach you'd like to take, whether it's me lecturing and leading discussion, or are you all teaching it back, and then I just insert myself whenever. But um, having said that, let's, uh, let me share screen. So you all can see the whiteboard, yeah? And if it turns out it's only us three in the class, that's perfectly fine with me, you know. Okay. Uh, so if the others don't show up, that's okay too. Inshallah. Could you mention the title of the
3: book one more time, real quick, if you don't mind?
0: Yeah. Uh, Khalid Abu El Fadl is the author. K H A L E D. Khalid Abu A-B-O-U, el Fadl E L, and then Fadl is F like Frank. A D L. And then the title is Reasoning with God. It's a big fat book. <laughs> Yeah. Like a lot of people in academics, part of the reason I'm critical of his writing is like a lot of people in academics, I think he could say everything he wants to say in probably half the words. Yeah. Uh, uh, I went to U of C and I got trained in the whole U of C school of Little red Schoolhouse, which is you know all about efficient writing and direct writing and such. So when I see the opposite of it, which is ninety percent of academic writing, it drives me crazy. So yeah. Okay. So, 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 this thing that we call Islam, this is sort of like, think of this as Islam 102. So Islam 101 is La Ilaha Illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, five pillars, things like that. So this will be Islam 102 or Islam 201. And when we speak of the construction of the sciences of Islam, uh, you can break them down basically into three categories. So, so one hey, there's So one category is what we would call the practical sciences, and I'll, I'll also fill those into another. Would be the or oh, actually, you know what? Let's make the practical sciences number two. You're gonna see me do a lot of that too. Uh, so uh, we're gonna call this reference the reference material. Number two is gonna be the practical sciences. And then and number three is going to be the abstract sciences. So the core reference material across Sunni, Ibadi, and such is, uh, is Arabic language, Quran. And in, I'm saying prophet. But prophet is Hadith and Sunnah. These are two different things. Okay. And so uh, to get a sense, I mean, the Quran is easy. That's the text. Arabic is easy. That's the whole linguistics. Uh, when we're speaking of the Prophet, peace be upon him, think of two things. One, uh, I'm guessing all of you were raised as Muslim. Yeah, I know, I know my undergrads were. And, and so think of how did you primarily learn your Islam? Uh, You might have gone to Sunday school, you might have even gone to full-time Islam school, but you primarily learned Islam inside your house. Here's how we do things. And you learned it inside your community. And so that's handed down from person to person, from generation to generation. That is more where you actually find the sunnah. And then where do you find the hadith? You find the hadith on a bookshelf. And so the hadith are the individual reports, whereas the sunnah... Is more often found in the living practice of the people. Okay. Now, sunnah itself also has different sunnah itself also has different meanings, uh, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. But in the sense that sunnah can mean anything that the Prophet did, or sunnah can be speaking of a level of obligation. You have fard, you have sunnah, you have nafl. right? Sunnah can also be referring to what the community does. But generally speaking, sunnah is found in the action of people, and it's handed down from person to person and such. And then hadith are the reports of anything and everything about the Prophet, peace be upon him. And we often think that the the hadith confirms the sunnah. Actually, in practice, the sunnah confirms the hadith. And that's the point to keep, to keep in the back of your head, they'll be revisiting. It's the opposite of what we commonly think. But this is the reference material. This is the source material upon which everything is created. And when I'm also saying sunnah, the reference material is also the ummah itself. And so to give you another example of that, <clears throat> the easiest example is prayer. So we often say, all right, you're not going to learn how to pray from the Quran. The Quran doesn't give you details how to pray. But neither does the hadith either. I mean, if you t- there isn't one hadith that says, here's all the steps to prayer. Here's one hadith that speaks about how the prophet starts prayers. Another one speaks about how he ends prayer. Here's where he recites in this prayer and so forth and so on. How does everyone learn how to pray? You learn from someone else. So you might have started with the internet. You might have started with a video. You might have started with a book. But how did you really learn how to pray? You learn from someone. It might have been your parents, your Sunday school teacher, or what have you. And that person learned from someone, and that person learned from someone, and that person learned from someone, going back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Because what does the Prophet say? Pray as you see me pray. And from that point forward, it's literally handed down as a living tradition from person to person to person. Another example of the living tradition is is recitation of the Quran. You can go through the whole Hadith literature, you're going to find almost nothing on how to recite the Quran. Yet you all know we have very precise rules on how to recite every letter. That's handed down person to person to person to person. And so the primary existence of of Islam is not on the bookshelf. It's actually in this lived transmission from person to person to person. Whether we're talking about prayer, whether we're talking about recitation of the Quran and such. And then the reference material, is invoked when it seems like we're going off track to bring things back onto track okay so then that gets into the practical sciences the big practical science is law and then another practical science is what we call tazkiyah. so tazkiyah is purification Probably the closest thing we have to this word spirituality. Spirituality is a super vague word, but it means almost whatever you want it to mean. But in the context of, of Islamic sciences, the closest thing to that is purification, tazkiyah. Okay. And then we also have uh, character, so adab and akhlaq. So this is all the stuff about like speaking the truth, having good manners, things like that. Like the prophet says, peace be upon him, I did not come except to perfect character. I did not come except to perfect akhlaq So these are the practical sciences. What does that mean? That these are the things that are actually lived, that people do. And then we have the abstract sciences. And so the abstract sciences uh, would be things like uh, theology, In theology, uh, the two common genres, one is called Kalam and another is called Usul ad-Din. And so, Usul ad-Din is sort of looking at what are the philosophical underpinnings behind the whole structure that we call Islam? What is the relationship between creator and creation? How does that work? How does free will predestination, how does that work? That would be Usuladin Kalam would be our answers to their questions. So often there's questions coming from outside of, of, of Islam, outside of the Muslims, but that are in the air. And so people want answers. So for example, big questions today would be like what's the stance on evolution? Yeah. It's not a question coming from within Islam. It's actually a question coming from within Christianity. Because in Christianity, we're basically saying that God and man, man is in the form is in the likeness of God so now if we're saying that man is a couple steps away from a monkey then what does that say about god yeah and so that becomes a real serious theological dilemma for us it's not so much a dilemma yet muslims still need some sort of an answer to the question otherwise you'll have some people say no there's no evolution others people say yeah absolutely there's evolution and so that would be kalam, our answers to their questions and sometimes we call it dialectical theology and of course there's philosophy philosopher. And so philosophy here is essentially any sort of abstract question. So from a philosophical perspective, what is the nature of time? That's a question that people have debated, not just in the modern era with Einstein, but this goes back a long time. History is also an abstract science. And this might be kind of confusing because we think, okay, you got all these dates, you have all these events and such. Yeah, but these are not things we live. These are not things we do. So if I asked each of you to give me a biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him, you could probably do that. Giving me the same, probably 20 steps and 20 events or so that everybody else does. You know, you have the Prophet in the cave. Or before the Prophet in the cave, you have peace be upon him, the Prophet he's walking by when they're rebuilding the Kaaba. And they're like, okay, who's going to, you know, what should we do about putting in the black stone? you know, and then other events, but those are not events you and I do. Those are stories that are in our heads. That we believe are events that happened in history. So that's, it's abstract. Whereas law is something you actually do. Okay. Tuskia is something you actually do, character is something you actually do. Okay. And so these are the abstract fields. And so all of this all these sciences, if I'm going too fast, just let me know and I can go back. So all those sciences. What is their source material? We said it's the Prophet in the Quran. That's where they're all coming from. And most of the Prophet in the Quran is an exposition of Surah Al Fatiha. And most of Al-Fatiha is an exposition of the first line, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which is what we call the Basmullah. And that is an exposition of the very first letter, B. And, and so what is B? B is in or with, that's how we translate it, like the B of Bismillah. And what is the essence of that? It's connection. And so Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim is all about what? It's the connection between you and Allah. And what is the nature of that connection? Allah's mercy, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And then al-Fatiha expands upon that, with the first half of al-Fatiha being about Allah in relationship to us, and the second half being about us in relationship to Allah. And and then the whole rest of the Quran is an expansion of that so in a way what we're saying is that the islamic sciences they're all about connection and with allah's rahmah and so that's essentially the goal of islamic sciences how to Uh, appreciate, receive, respond to Allah's Rahmah. How to connect to Allah. How to have a relationship with Allah. And then, another way to think about this, then, making the same point through a different diagram, is we have, so we have the Prophet and the Quran. What is the essential function of the Prophet and the Quran? It's to bring us closer to God. That is the essential goal, right? With emphasis on his mercy. And then the two big fields where these are expressed is law. And then I'm using this term spirituality. And so the term for law is sharia couple terms for spirituality. The most common term is Ihsan, but then I use this term tazkiyah, and this is also where I use the term, the realm of the Sufis. Okay. And so then what is law? Law is focused on your external condition, which is your actions. Spirituality is focused on your internal condition, which is the realm of the purity of your heart. And often there is another field that is placed in between these uh, these both. Which is the realm of the basic creed, but I'm putting this into in, in, in I'm putting this in parentheses so it doesn't get too confusing. But essentially, Sharia is the realm of the body, creed is the realm of the mind, and spirituality, Ihsan, does The realm of Sufis is the realm of the heart. So, what else am I saying by all this? <coughs> that for many of us, we define Sharia almost as the entirety of Islamic law. Sharia is the externals of the Muslim experience. It's focused on action. But when we think of the content of the Quran, how many ayahs, so there's about 6,000 ayahs, uh, how many of those ayahs actually focus on action? Less than 500. Most of the Quran is focused on your thinking. Literally 250 to 350 is the most common number uh, of uh, when we total the number of ayahs that say do this or don't do this. So we're saying less than 10%. 90% is not Islamic law. So then why do we have so much focus on Islamic law? Number one is because it's tangible, it's practical. And an essential goal of Islamic law, a goal is basically to give you stability and, and validity of your actions. Stability and validity. Spirituality is all focused on change. And so Islamic law is not capable of telling you how to establish Islamic law. Islamic law, if there's, you know, when uh, when the Arab Spring was beginning and there was all these revolts and, and uprisings and such, most of the Islamic legal scholars spoke against them because in their lens, stability is the highest priority. And protests are not about stability. Protests are about disruption. Yeah. And so a lot of major uh uh islamic uh legal scholars in in the arab world in egypt and syria they lost a lot of credibility among the people but part of the problem was that the uh the scholars didn't understand what the people were looking for and the people who were who were, uh, who were asking the questions didn't know what to ask uh yeah i you have a question
2: yeah so i had a question about that Arab spring you said um that the islamic scholars condemned it but is that a white so is that do you think that's right?
0: Well, I'm saying they're working within their realm. And so in their lens, they're focused on stability. And, and so uh, the protests are focused on disruption of the norm. And so through their lens, that's a no-no. Yeah. But, but... To re- to really to, to really make the point, their approach would be that even if you're living under tyranny, if it's stable, it's better than anarchy.
2: Okay. So doesn't Islamic jurisprudence allow for you to defend against oppression?
0: So, so that would often be outside the realm of Islamic law. The short answer is yes, but here we're talking about an uprising within the state to overthrow the government, right, as opposed to an external yeah, force coming in to attack. Okay. and so so see what i'm saying you know but this is why those legal scholars lost a lot of credibility because they were saying no you can't you can't protest Uh, and and so the people are saying then okay you got to give us another option then because we get where our backs are against the wall but the key point i'm making is that, that is outside of the realm of islamic law to address it would be just like going to a cardiologist for a problem with your foot Going to an Islamic legal scholar doesn't mean you're gonna have answers for every aspect of life. You're gonna have answers focused on action. It takes time to digest because we've been so conditioned that Islamic law has the answers for everything. And I'm saying, no, that is not how Islamic law works.
2: Right, so I don't wanna get too far ahead. So, but then where would the responsibility fall on? Who, like what part of Islam, if not Islamic law, then what is the doctrine that will tell me I'm allowed to do this, which is rebel against oppressive?
0: So it used to be that the Sufis were the agents agents of social change. They used to be the social activists. Yeah. But then what happened over the past 200 years is they became now what their reputation is for is that they're only focused on prayer and purification of the heart without focus on social change. So the Sufis used to even be organized in what we would call guilds in our language or unions or movements. And either some people suggest that they got co-opted by, by uh, colonialism or that they've just decided that the difference between power and lack of power is so huge, don't even try. And so because of their shift out of public life, then that's why in the 20th century you saw all these Muslim movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and Jamaat, Islami, and such grow because they they're the Sufis left a void, uh, you know, in terms of, of what we call activism. And so essentially what I'm saying is that in contemporary Islamic thought, you don't have much there in terms of people focused on these things. And so this is also why when we have like all the Bernie bros and all that stuff, they don't really have much of a of, of an Islamic center to them because there's no one teaching them an Islamic center. This is one of the deficits of contemporary Islam. And and then we have a plethora of, of no, it's not the right use of the word, but uh, a plethora of, of, of writings on Islamic finance and particulars of prayer and such, which is all well and good, but then there's big aspects of life that are completely left out. So your question is a very, very important question. And I was saying in history, there were, so to speak, departments or people that would be part of the uh, part of the answer, providing the answers, saying by and large today, we don't have very much of that. And that is part of the reason for our condition.
2: So I want to ask one more question. And yeah, go for it. If I'm going too ahead.
0: That's fine.
2: But these historical entities, where did they get their source from? Where did they get their hacking from? Like
0: All coming from the primary sources. So, one, one genre was called manhaj, which is sort of like looking at the Prophet, peace be upon him, as a movement. And it's been growing a little bit in the second half of the 20th century, but still it's in its rudiments. So. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it's almost like a, a big vicious circle. So, there's lots of fields that are relevant to people's lives that are not being addressed, but they're not being addressed because but as a community we don't really invest too much money in terms of knowledge and so thus the people who are going to knowledge uh, are going to go into whatever fields is going to get them a job which is primarily things like islamic finance which means that even less uh, there's even less focus on these other necessary fields and it literally becomes this, this vicious circle so, yeah. okay so again what is our, our overall goal our overall goal is to really get a sense of where does islamic law fit into the whole picture and and so, uh, it's one of the practical sciences, and it's focused on your external condition. It's focused on action. And and validity. By validity, I'm basically saying how to make sure your actions are valid uh, uh, before Allah, tell Allah. Whereas spirituality is focused on pure, uh, purity of the heart, making sure your intentions are sound and clear. And how do you purify yourself and such? Okay. Any other questions about uh, about uh, all this? So uh, this, I just want to give you a very very simple uh, intro to the to the material uh, of of Islamic law. Another small point, but we're going to get into this next week. The word Sharia, in fact, let's talk about this, although it's going to be in more detail. Uh, another uh, issue, fiqh versus sharia okay two terms that we commonly hear in terms of islamic law and so first just the meanings of the word sharia literally translates as the path that leads to water or the path that leads to relief so in other words for a street in arabic is sharia same root word It's like a ton of the arabic words uh, seem to all translate to path in some form. Sirat al mustaqim straight path, right? Madhab, which is one of the, the schools of law. That's really the path that you go. Sirah, biography of the prophet, is the path that somebody has walked. So path comes over and over again. So this is the path that leads to leads to water. And then fiqh literally translates as understanding. But what is fiqh essentially? Fiqh is the interpretation of the Sharia. So imagine the Sharia uh, essentially being the Quran and the Prophet, period. Uh, If we're speaking as Sunnis, it's the Quran and the Prophet and the Sahaba. If we're speaking as Shias, it's the Quran and the Prophet and the Imams. That's Sharia. When we look through them through the lens of action. Fiqh is the process of now figuring out how to interpret that for my life or for our era that's what fiqh is fiqh is trying to understand and interpret the sharia and so this what we call the schools of thought are the schools of law they're schools of fiqh and so essentially the schools that we're commonly familiar with their goal is consistency of interpretation so there are schools of interpretation the hanafi school is a particular approach to interpretation the Maliki school is a different approach to interpretation. Interpretation of what? The Prophet, the Quran, and the Sahaba. So the Shafi'i school, the Hanbali school, in Shia tradition, the Jafari school, the Zaydi school, these are all schools seeking consistency in interpretation. That's literally what they are. So all this is sort of like your your Islam 102. And and then there are schools of theology that have different interpretations on questions like, all right, do people innately know the truth? And so outside of law, if people innately know the truth because they're born on fitrah, then that means innately they know the truth, if not throughout their whole lives, then at least at points in their life, which means that they don't have an excuse on the Day of Judgment, like the person raised on an island. Another school of theology says, yeah, people are born on fitrah, but then as you're living life, as you're being raised, that can get buried, and so you might lose sight of the truth, which means it's not fair for that person to go to hell on the Day of Judgment. So like the questions of can a non-Muslim go to hell or a non-Muslim go to paradise, that would be in the schools of theology as opposed to schools of law. And they're abstract. So there's schools for those things as well. And then there's schools of spirituality. These are usually the Sufi tariqas that have their own methods for purification of the heart. If you're familiar with like the different schools of martial arts, so you know, you have Kung Fu and Jiu Jitsu and Wing Chun and all those things, those are different schools of martial arts with their different methods. In the same way, we have different schools of, of, of Sufis. Different schools of spirituality, with their own methods uh, for purifying people's hearts. So this big thing that we call Islam is this whole mix of different schools of different of different aspects of life. And you could go through life without being connected to any school. But historically, in Muslim majority lands, you'd be you would probably be part of a school and not even realize it. So, like, for example, if you go to Devon Avenue, so to say, I don't know if you've ever been to Devon in Chicago. Have you ever been to Chicago? Okay, yeah. So Devon, many of the restaurants are literally the legacies of these, of these Sufi tarikas. Sha- uh, Sabri Nihari is the Sabri school of Sufis. And back in the subcontinent, what was one of their activisms? It would be to provide food for the needy. And so, historically, their dish that they'd provide to everybody was Nihari. And so many of these, these, uh, these restaurants are literally legacies of those. Gharib Nawaz is, is another legacy of a Sufi tariqa. And what are they known for in Divan? Super cheap food. Okay. Yummy food, but it's super, super inexpensive. Because that was their approach. Let's make food accessible to everybody. Make it as cheap as possible. Okay. And that was part of their, their activism back in the day.
3: Quick question regarding the consistency um, that schools are looking for. Is it, more, so you, is it more based on methods or is it based on having like a ideological foundation that they're basing their interpretations on, if that makes sense?
0: So the ideological foundation, if it's there, it would not be conscious. Uh, you know, Latter-day academics would go and, and try to identify those types of things. Usually they're essentially schools of grammar. And and so one simple example is that in Arabic, the imperative form, what we call fa'al-amr, which is basically do this. Uh, how do you know if it's a recommendation or how do you know if it's a command? And so different schools would use different methods to determine, all right, if the Quran is using this form and it says, okay, pray or do the pilgrimage, or when you do a contract, have witnesses, two men, one wit- uh two men, or one woman one man two women those types of things how do we know if that's a command or if that's a recommendation so they're primarily schools of grammatical interpretation and then they're using other aspects to help figure out answers to those questions but uh, the ideology uh, type aspect uh, i think is more present in the sufi tarikas uh, because they're also appearing in particular moments in human history you know, related to responses to kings and such like that. So, uh, but there might be an unconscious ideology in the schools of law. I mean, in the sense that, okay, everybody has bias, right? And so one way to, to that we could perhaps see that is that uh, in the Maliki school, uh, the Malikis are not as repulsed by power as, for example, the Hanafis are. And so in terms of, okay, so let's say you have a king who says, all right, we want you to be in a, we want you, Mr. Legal Scholar, Ms. Legal Scholar, usually it's Mr. We want you to have a seat um, to, to advise us. The Malikis would often say yes, uh, using the reasoning that, okay, if they don't pick me, they're going to pick somebody and they're probably going to pick somebody worse. Okay. Whereas the Hanapis are often saying, no, you know, I'd rather take the punishment than listen to the king. Yeah. And these are these are more set of secondary points to the to the schools, but that could be a place where we might see some sort of ideological disposition, because the Malachites were also very notorious or infamous or famous for even vilifying the kings too, you know. So, but yeah, I would still default by suggesting that they are more schools of of textual interpretation, grammar, things like that, linguistics. Yeah, yeah I will.
2: So stop me if I'm, like, asking long questions here, but uh, I have two questions right now. Was it, was this always meant to be open for interpretation like this?
0: What, what, is, Allah it your, knows everything? what is it in your question? The word it. Uh,
2: the way of Islam. So there is, so there's the Quran, right? And it has the basic outlines of what I need to do. And that's, you know, and that kind of leads into my second question. Pray five times a day, the five pillars, and that's going to take me to heaven or jannah. Okay, okay. And so, but now when you think about this, there's multiple avenues to Jannah. Okay. Not one straight path. Okay. So, when you take that into account, which, you know, and when, when you have different paths, there's one that's better and there's one that's not so better. Okay. So, how do we know which one is in, theoretically the right path to Jannah when there's rotation within the religion?
0: Okay so at the time of the prophet peace be upon him how would we answer that question
2: how would i
0: answer yeah listen to the quran we just go and ask him directly
2: Oh, oh okay okay yeah
0: yeah now once he's dead then what do you do
2: you go off the hadith and the sunnah
0: okay so so think of the of the hadith as all of this raw material of everything about him how do you determine what's more important, what's less important? So for example, in the hadith, we have, how did he used to eat chicken? How did he used to eat bananas? Uh, we also have, you know, how did he conduct a treaty with with an opposing uh, tribe? Uh, how do you figure out what's more important, what's less important?
2: is more important than eating a chicken.
0: Well, how do you know that that's, uh, how do you know that a treaty is more important than you know, that's
2: you, the thing? How do you know that?
0: That's why the schools of interpretation formed as a group exercise to try to figure out the answers to these questions. That's exactly what they're about. They're saying that okay, <clears throat> here's a here's an issue we've never faced before that wasn't around at the time of the Prophet peace be upon him. How do we figure out the answer? We could say do anything. Um, if the prophet didn't address it, or we can say here's our starting material, and using principles that we're deriving from the material, these this seems to be the best answer, this seems to be the worst answer, so forth and so on. Easy question. Okay, does the Quran support the death penalty?
2: Yes. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Does that mean you should support the death penalty in the United States? Honey saying no.
2: No, I'm going to say no because
0: Why? we not live fairly. Okay. So one is okay, honey saying it's not being implemented uh, fairly. What else? I no, know, no, I
1: said mean? not necessarily.
0: Oh, yeah. not necessarily. Okay.
1: Yeah. The answer should we support in the US.
0: Okay, give me a more direct answer. Yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, what I'm asking is do you support as a Muslim support the death penalty in the United States?
1: I think whatever your heart feels more content with is the right way.
0: Okay, so what if I'm a senior? Whatever basicist? pleases
1: Allah with it, given you conscious. Uh-huh.
3: So she's in I full lawyer mode right now, not giving a yes or no answer. <laughs> what did you say you I said she's in full lawyer mode right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally, no yeah, answer. Yeah.
0: yeah, and then on top of that, I, I'm a Muslim teaching Islamic studies in America, so you can be sure this is all being recorded somewhere <laughs> or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that, okay, when we look in our primary sources, number one, uh, the death penalty is, impl- is, is chosen by the victim of the family, or the family's victim, not by the state, which is what it's done here. Okay. So it's already fundamentally the operation of it is different. The type of execution is different. But then on top of that, as an interpretation, the argument is that you can't even think of things like the death penalty, these severe punishments, unless there's certain things already taking place healthy in a society. Okay. That's all interpretation of text. If we just say we take the text literally, well, the text says eye for an eye, bam, slaughter. Then we have ISIS. That's literally the ISIS methodology. It's in the text, therefore we do it. With no concept of, all right, what is, you know, how do we derive what is best, most healthy practice and such. And so at the end of the day, we also have narrations where the prophet is saying, peace be upon him, that, if you're going through the process of, of trying to figure out answers to questions, uh, you get rewarded for having tried. If you come up with the correct answer, you get double reward. And so it's emphasized is the process of deliberation. And what's interesting is what's the word, what's the word for, for this deliberation? Like literally the general word for looking for answers for questions. Ijtihad. What's the root word of ijtihad? It's jihad. The form of the word ijtihad is basically to do jihad really hard. So, this is fun. On the battlefield, the word there is jihad. In the library, the word is ijtihad, which is to do jihad really hard. So, literally, it's saying ijtihad is harder than the battlefield thing. I was like, this is getting me excited. I'm a Marine. I like talking about fighting and all that stuff, Yeah. You know? Okay, so yeah, so the answer to your question is that the reason these schools formed is that we don't have a papacy. We don't have a pope and, and this whole clergy system that can, that can determine the answers for all of us. Uh, that this is a collective human endeavor, uh, collectively looking for answers together. And Just to chime fine. in real quick, if you don't mind, regarding that yeah, question...
3: Um, I think one of the beauties of our religion is that we don't have that one, you know, like, this is what you have to do. Everyone has to be, you know, following that same path. Um, and it gives us the flexibility, whether it's, like, whether you can eat, whether McDonald's is halal or it's not. Um, and Most like, common question in all of
0: American history, yeah.
3: <laughs> right. Uh, and, like, as you mentioned, you're, like, only about, the Quran doesn't focus on halal and haram, whereas the main purpose of Islam is to, you know, bring that faith. Um, Mm -hmm. And it also allows us to explore the religion more when things aren't cut out. You know, if you don't, if if everyone knew the answers to everything, you would just not, you know, struggle and make that jihad to learn the answers Mm -hmm. and learn more about your religion. So I think there's a beauty to that too, not being given everything uh, straightforward.
0: Mm -hmm. This is uh, literally the common reading for the ambiguity of the text. There's a few things in the text where it's categorically clear. One God. Right, day of judgment coming. Uh, and then different levels of, of clarity and ambiguity, which then forces you to go through a deliberation process. Yeah. Uh, Omahani, you you're raising your hand. You
1: no, know, I was just wondering, what are the values? Like you said, stability is one value that the Sharia, are, uh, the Sharia aims for. What uh-huh. are other values that the Sharia aims for? Because I'm guessing these are the values that the rules are derived.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so let's figure that out, all of us together, as we go through the text. And, and part of the reason I'm suggesting that is when these schools are forming, they're not looking from the perspective of values as much as they're looking from the perspective of interpretation of, of grammar, of interpretation of sentences and words and all of that, right? And but then we see consistent patterns. And so, one area where your question is going to be answered is in the genre that we call maqasid. So, maqasid is the higher priorities. But we're also going to find other values outside of the maqasid in terms of consistency throughout this. And I think let's do that as part of our whole process of going through this Abu al Fadl text. Especially because that's very much a 21st century question, uh, uh, as opposed to in the past. So a lot of uh, the clash uh, in, certain, uh, in certain aspects of the Muslim community is sort of this clash between text and values, which is also a clash in terms of like Orthodox Judaism versus Reform Judaism and such. And so let's, work, let's go through the text to try to figure out a lot of those answers. Uh, Adil, you got a question?
2: Oh, no, I didn't have a question. I'll uh, say something. Was say, okay, sorry, I said wrong, but it's kind of, it. red, so I'm, I'm going to skip on it.
0: Okay. Okay, cool. So, having said that, <laughs> uh, for those who came in late, I gave some suggestions on, on uh, how I'd like us to uh, approach the, the book. So, the book we're using is Reasoning with God Reclaiming the Sharia in the Modern Age by Khalid Abdul Fadl. And my suggestion is is that uh, you know you volunteer different with different uh, students here volunteer to teach it back to us. And uh, nevertheless, what I think first what we'll do is we're going to go through the prologue and I'll just teach that material. And then someone should at some point either today or later on volunteer, for example, do chapter one. Which is about 19 pages. Chapter two, which is about 40 pages, so forth and so on. If that works for all of you, okay. but if you volunteer and then you know you don't show up for that day, okay, we're kind of stuck. But I mean, so don't volunteer if you really don't think you're going to do it. But volunteer if you think uh, uh, it'll be beneficial for you. As like I mentioned at the beginning of class, that's the best way to actually learn the material is when you're assigned with 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 teaching it. So, but what do you all think of that approach? Uh, uh, if you don't have time for that approach, that's fine too. You know, any thoughts?
1: I like the second approach, or you <laughs> and we discuss.
0: Okay. That's fine too. We can do that. Uh, say any thoughts? I'm gonna agree
3: with her in the sense just so no one is held accountable besides you.
0: Okay, that's that's, that's fine.
3: No, well, no, I I mean, fine. I mean, I definitely agree. It's more sorry, go ahead. I'll go. I was
2: going to say, I'll help you teach chefs, don't
0: worry. Oh, thanks. thanks. I really appreciate that, Adil. Thank you. Yeah.
3: I definitely think it's more effective for your work, but I just feel like I'm pretty sure people have commitments and things are going okay. on, and that way the pressure isn't on us, if that's if that's okay. okay.
0: With you. Fair enough. That works both as a real excuse and as a bogus excuse as well, but it, it works as a real excuse. So. Okay. So uh, if you can, uh, I suggest reading the, 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 the prologue by next week. If you don't read it by next week, that's fine, too. And, and so literally it's an introduction to the Sharia. So if what we did today was sort of Islam 102, this is sort of Islam 103. And that'll be our material for next week. And it might take, uh, depending upon the questions, it might take two weeks. And then the rest of the text is then trying to figure out, okay, how does this all work? in 2020 and such. <laughs> uh, I will skip 101. Yeah, that's a parent of your question. No, I, 101 is basically, you know, you know, no God but God, Muhammad's the messenger of God, peace be upon him and the five pillars. That's basically Islam 101. And, you know, um, all the things we don't do. Islam is not about violence. Islam doesn't oppress the women. Islam is not the peace. Oh, Islam is the peace. You know, all those things. But yeah. Cool. Any other questions? Oh, is it okay with you all if I record this? um and, but i'm just going to keep the audios uh, i'm not going to keep the videos and if you have any objection to that let me know
2: yeah i love how you already recorded it and then you're asking us
0: oh, yeah, because I, I started the recording and then i forgot and i just happened to be looking at the <laughs> top of the screen yeah, yeah. If, if, you, if any of you object i can just stop it and, and delete no, it sure. yeah.
2: i mean i'm good is is there any way to like omit anything if that ever
0: if necessary, we can. because, yeah, I know you well enough, Adil, that we might have to delete a whole. Lot I was of your already
3: afraid of asking Tom. I'm sorry. what did you say to say it? I said I was already afraid, without even getting
0: into the context of things. <laughs> to say something. Oh totally. You know, and like I said, like I said, I mean, I mean, I can give you all kinds of bizarre stories of things that have happened in my office that we just attribute to federal monitoring or something like that. You know, <laughs> so. So just assume by being in my world, you're probably being monitored in some capacity. Sorry. Any other questions about anything else? Uh, We also have two other people who, uh, in fact, how about uh, Adil, Rafael, and and Hadia, you wanna introduce yourself to everyone else? Adil, why don't you go first?
2: Yeah. uh, Salaam, everybody. My name is Adil, as my screen says. Uh, I'm an undergrad and I'm looking to get into law, hopefully do human rights law. I'm a junior right now. I just transferred in, so this is my first semester and it's been great over Zoom so far. I love Zoom University.
0: On <laughs> <laughs> Academy, yeah. Uh, Raphael, if, you, if you're willing, uh, please introduce yourself to us. Oh, we can't hear you.
2: I said sorry for the bad hair today. I just realized.
0: <laughs> right, put a cap yeah, on. this. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. (laughs) Great. Uh, I'm actually a law student at Loyola. Yeah. um, And uh, I'm Cuban.
3: I'm of Cuban origin, but I'm always looking to learn more about other cultures and be respectful Mm -hmm. of other cultures uh, because uh, one of my goals
0: as an LGBTQ member is to provide as much of an equal, uh, fair, and justice field to everybody, regardless of culture. Okay, very nice. Um, I don't recall. Uh, let's say we can find something in the text that can also connect with, with this as well. Uh, we'll figure something out. Okay, Very good. And then Hadia looks like she ran away. So <laughs> just in time for in, in introductions. Okay, very good. So assuming the time slot uh, 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 works for you, we will meet again, inshallah, next Monday at 730 and if you don't have my email address, then whoever you're connected to the guy into the class can give it to uh, can give it to me or give it to you. Uh, if you have any other questions before then,
2: you have the link to the book.
0: Uh, uh, here's the, just like the, the Amazon page. Okay. And I won't, I won't ask, you know, all of you undergrads, all the uh, illicit means that you have. Yeah.
2: Who's who's a graduate student here?
0: So we have Hani, who's a law student, and Raphael, who's a law student. Yeah. Where's Hani? Hani is uh, right there. Yeah. Um, Hani. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, it, it it I know in Arabic that means um, Hani means mother of Hani, but that's just my name, yeah. and I go by Hani.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. That's how DC names work.
1: That's yeah. how DC names work. Yep. Yeah. I'll change it. just what I go by. Yeah.
0: Cool. Okay you're you're welcome <laughs> whatever whatever your capacity your name is okay cool any other last questions no all right then we will touch base next week and if you needed a recording of the audio let me know if you for to catch on whatever you may have missed and such cool. and uh, otherwise uh, take care i'll see you all next week
2: all right do you want me to email you for the recording
0: uh, sure if you would like it
2: okay cool